0: you turn to Romans chapter 1 as we begin our new series Romans chapter 1 special welcome to these folks on the right side of the church finally (laughs) you're welcome back there anytime It's confusing time for preachers because people are sitting different places, different people, and usually you get to know each section of the church and who's typically sitting there, so it's a, a different time for sure. Romans chapter 1. Well, he was sitting on a lawn chair the first time I ever saw him, he was old, he patted my head. He was my grandfather, the only grandparent I ever met, and I only met him twice, twice before he died. Some in my family say I look like him, some say I act like him, and I do like to sit on lawn chairs, so there is that too. Blood relatives matter. There's a connection, even with a relative that you've never met before. As we come to the book of Romans, it's important to remember that Paul has never met these Roman Christians. They are not his converts. Like most of the epistles, he's writing to people that he was instrumental in their lives and bringing the gospel to. That's not the case in the book of Romans. Most likely, the house churches in the capital city, the imperial city, Rome, And there were at least four house churches in that city. Most likely, they were planted by Jews who had been converted to Christ after hearing Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, just at Pentecost. And shortly after, Jesus rose from the dead. They made their way back to the imperial city. They formed house churches. And so 25 years later now, Paul is writing to them, and he's letting them know he's part of their Christian family. They've never heard of each other much. They've heard others speak of each other. They've never met. And so the greeting is longer than typical. And notice as I read how Paul will give some of his own history to them to make them familiar with him. And, and then the story of Christ, beginning of verse 1. Paul, a servant It doesn't matter where you're from or even what time in history you're from. If you're a Christian disciple, there are words in that greeting that should resonate with you. Paul says he's a servant, literally a slave of Jesus Christ. And so were the uh, Rome Christians, and so are you, if you know him as Lord and Savior. He says he's called to be an apostle, and what he's stressing is that Everything he knows about God, everything he does for God, is not his own initiative. God called him. God set him apart for the gospel of God. It's God's good news. It's his gospel. And this good news, God himself promised through the Holy Scriptures, through the prophets, he says. Paul didn't come up with this on his own. God initiates God. God determines, God establishes, and Paul's standing is not something he chose, but something that he was chosen for by God. And the good news is entirely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3, where he says, concerning his son, you see, concerning his son who was descended from David, now he's talking about the flesh descended from David according to the flesh, that's the messianic promise, and was declared to be the son of God. Now he's talking about his deity in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he's talking about the flesh and the spirit, the Messiah and the the son of God. God became man. And dwelt among us, notice the Trinitarian statement here because he's referring to God, the Father, he refers to his son Jesus Christ, and then he says in verse four, the spirit of holiness, a Trinitarian picture, one God, three persons, together in the family of God, we are together, and he says that that we are Uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 4. It's not my Lord, it's not your Lord, it's our Lord, Paul tells the Christians in the Roman city. So then he returns to his own resume. He says, uh, verse 5, through whom we, that is a royal we, and he speaks about God's favor, received grace, and God's uh, equipping an apostleship here, uh, he has given him appointment and he has given him mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. All nations, not just Jews, not just Greeks or Gentiles, not just barbarians, not just Roman Christians, not just Lambton County. <laughs> However, we might divide people, he's saying all nations. And that includes me and includes you. Verse 6, he says, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. And then he speaks of God's love and call on all of us as Christians, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So it's just not Paul who's called. He's saying you're called too. Loved by God, called to be saints, that is, uh, sanctified ones pursuing holiness in our lives, set apart for God. So all of this is to communicate to us that there are no free agents in Christianity. They use that word in sports, don't they? You're a free agent. What Paul is saying is there's none of that in Christianity. Though they've never met, Paul is drawing a linkage between God himself and the Roman Christians in the house churches that are there in Rome. It's the same good news. It's the same Savior. We have a defined body of truth that we believe. He's highlighted some of it about Jesus. A defined body of truth. We have a specific gospel and a specific Savior. There's no place for free agents to believe what they want and do what they want in Christianity. We hear that sometimes I can do what I want. I can start my own church. No one tells me what to do. Christianity is whatever I say it is. I can believe what I want. Those sort of statements are foreign to Christianity, have no place within our faith. That's, those statements come from an individualized culture in which we live in. Uh, but not from the scriptures. <laughs> Christianity is not a follow your heart sort of Disney affair. We follow Jesus Christ, a crucified Savior. We submit ourselves to Him, to each other. We have a defined body of truth according to the Word of God, and we live according to that truth in our lives as we seek to obey Him. He says, You're loved and you're called. And Paul isn't saying, no one can tell me what to do. Instead, he says, he starts it off, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I do what he says. What he believes, Paul, is what God has entrusted to him. What he does is the mission that God has called him to. So there's no free agent in Christianity. That's our current culture. I mean, there are too many independent, unaffiliated Christians and also too many churches that are disconnected from Christian history and disconnected from each other and disconnected from blood relatives related not in the flesh but through the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christianity transcends ethnicity, transcends nationality, transcends geography, it transcends cultures, it transcends uh, time, and it unites a body of people in common belief around our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are told the, the metaphor of family is used for us based on Christ's blood, not our parents' blood. See, Christianity is not about your parents' blood. We can look different. We can be different. We can have different skin color, different hair, different eyes, different passports, different languages even. And this is why you can go to any nation on earth and where there is a group of faithful Christians meeting. You can have a relationship with them. You can have community immediately with them. Because even though you've never met, they are your blood relatives. And immediately you just fit right in, don't you? I've attended a church like that in Cuba. And just right away, you know, blood relatives. Or, or, or uh, a church in Jerusalem I was at. And you just, you fit in right away. Even in the United States, been churches there. You just fit in. Because we have the same Godhead, the triune God. We have the same body of truth, the same Savior. And we have the same calling on our, lo- on our lives. There are commonalities of faith that define us as Christians. And that we have to hold to. And we can't add to them, we can't take away from them. Because there's no free agents in Christianity. And he underlines that in the verses that follow. As I read, as he commends the Rome Christians, notice how many times he'll use the word all or everyone. First he says, verse eight, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest amongst you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, Rome was a very cosmopolitan city and all sorts of ethnicities and and the churches in that capital city, the Rome Christians at this time of receiving the letter, were more Gentile than Jew. The world in uh, the Jewish sense was broken up into two categories, Jew, Gentile, you were either one or the other. Of course, there's others mentioned here, barbarian, that was northern Europe and into Germany, considered the barbarians, and even up into the northern part of England. So then we have sometimes Gentiles referred to as Greek. So these are all different words that are used to sort of divide up ethnicities and understanding of the world at the time. At this time, the churches, the Roman churches, were more Gentile than Jewish. They started off completely Jewish. But in A.D. 49, something happened that changed that. And what happened in A.D. 49 was the emperor, Claudius, Exiled from the imperial city, Rome, all of the Jews Jews, immediately. They had to pack and leave the next day. Uh, It was an awful thing. He was very anti Semitic. And what a historian of the day wrote was that what really got under his skin, the emperor's skin, was that the Jews were fighting over Crestos. The historian didn't even know how to spell Christos. He put Krestos. They were fighting about Christ. Some Jews were upset with the Jews who were becoming Christians and was causing a big blow up in the city. And so he just exiled them all. And in an instant, in an instant, the Jewish majority churches became Gentile churches because there was no Jews left in the city. And over the next... 10, 15, 18 years. Gentiles were being saved and they were being taking up the positions of leadership within the Roman churches. The elders would be Gentile, the deacons gentile, the stewards, Gentile, the, the hymn leaders, all Gentile. And then, of course, slowly the Jews would start coming back. And that was happening while he's writing this letter. And those Jewish Christians coming back to their homes that they had abandoned overnight suddenly found that they were the minority in the church and that all the positions of leadership they used to have were already taken. So you can imagine some of the tension that's happening between the Jew and the Gentile within the churches in Rome. And Paul is going to address that. And that's why already he's addressing it, isn't he? Already he's saying everyone, all Jew or Greek, this gospel is for all of us. We have a common Savior and a common body of truth that we gather around. He's already beginning to stress that. And that's why he does it. Paul is commending their faith. It's being proclaimed in all the world, he says. That's hyperbolic. I mean, that's exaggerated writing. He proclaimed in all the world, verse 8, but their faith is well known by other Christians. Though he's clear that they need some input, they need him to visit. He wants to be used there to strengthen them and to guide them. Uh, You know, if the world knows about us, we want to be known for our faith in Christ, don't we? We want to be known for our love and good works done in Jesus' name. We want to be known for gentleness and kindness don't we? I mean, we sing that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And that's really picking up on what Jesus said. Jesus said this, he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, if we are to be hated at any time, We hope it's for the gospel's sake and for fidelity to the Godhead, the triune God, and not because of any bad behavior on our part. Because with faith in Christ comes responsibility to walk in faith. And this is certainly true in pandemic times as well. A pandemic doesn't relieve us from the responsibilities of our faith to act kindly, and to speak graciously and charitably. It doesn't allow us free reign on social media to say things and to write things. That should never be even in our heart. Some of you will be aware of the happenings at Grace Life Church in Edmonton. Grace Life Church's building is now surrounded by a fence, Uh, The building was shut down by their health board in Edmonton, Alberta. The pastor was in jail for a couple of weeks. And certainly we feel for them, and we understand many of their frustrations. We might even share their frustrations. Uh, But we here at People's Church have chosen a different approach. And our leadership has reflected on this and. And here's how we are different here at than Grace Life Church. You may want to re-listen to this this afternoon or this week. Here's how we're different than our brothers and sisters there at that church in Edmonton. First off, government, according to the scriptures which we obey, is to be honored. Respected, prayed for. This very book of Romans will say these words let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and will incur judgment. The scriptures tell us how we are to behave towards our governing authorities. And we don't expect government to be perfect. We don't even expect them to be consistent or necessarily wise. We don't even expect them to be godly. Our obedience, even to inconvenient rules, is not conditional on their perfection. In this anti-authority time in which we live, we have to be careful to not think that we only follow rules that we agree with. We don't view the government as the enemy, but as ordained by God according to the Scriptures. The government may not be our friend, but it is not our enemy. Secondly, we recognize that we already submit to all sorts of rules from the government concerning our property here. Um, We already had capacity numbers before COVID that we were not allowed to go over these come under fire safety rec- regulations our elevator has a plaque that says how many people are allowed in it for safety reasons we have signs those exit signs are required by the government okay for safety reasons we have building codes we have the number of our bathrooms is dictated by the government and parking spaces and How much insurance we carry on the building and payroll taxes and charitable reporting requirements. All sorts of things that we submit to the government with because we know those are not gospel issues. During this pandemic time, if the government lowers capacity limits and asks churches to put out hand sanitizer and some signs... It does not seem to be suddenly unreasonable to work with them on this when we have worked with them on safety issues, on everything else. Brothers and sisters, our goal as Christians is not to expect perfect government and not to bring in a Christian government. And we don't reject out-of-hand government rules. We, We remember that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we don't reject government rules and call it religious freedom. We are not trying to establish the kingdom of God in Canada. It's not going to happen. And we don't find here at Peoples and the other evangelical churches across our land, mostly, we don't find that social distancing, hand sanitizer, a few signs to wash your hands, and even masks, while all very inconvenient, is not too much to ask. And it is not a violation of Christian freedom or Christian faith, And the scripture says to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And what you must remember is that our brothers and sisters out west at that one church have rejected everything. Not just capacity limits, but also hand sanitizer and signage. And they rejected it all. We don't see the church as a building We are the church, the people of God, spiritual stones, spiritual bricks. And you know, no pastor is so important that if he is not in his pulpit on a Sunday morning, all Christendom comes to an end. (laughs) The gospel does not require us to meet at this hour, on this day, but instead tells us wherever two or three are gathered in his name, There am I in their midst. Now, the elders are working, we are working with all the other evangelical churches in Lambton County because there's no free agents. (laughs) You know the churches around Grace Life Church in Edmonton are not happy with Grace Life. They don't like that Grace Life is tying their defiance to Christ and the gospel, trying to make it seem like it's a spiritual issue or a religious issue. It's not. It's a civil liberties issue. Um, And they're dragging Christ into it. And civil liberties, however you define it, is not an idol. And it's not wise to mix up fighting for perceived civil liberties during a pandemic to mix that up with the gospel, that's, that's not wise. And it, it Pastor Coates didn't go to jail for Christ. Let's be very clear about that. He went to jail because he sees any health guidelines as a violation of his religious and civil rights. It has with it the air of no one's going to tell me what to do. Least of all government. But it's not right and it's not Christ and it's not the gospel that's at stake. They accepted capacity limits before for fire safety reasons. Why is it a problem now? And however it's spiritualized, it's not for Christ and the gospel. And they have refused even to speak to their health people, their health authorities. They won't even open communication. They won't even put out a single hand sanitizer. <laughs> the world is not talking about their faith, their love, or their gentleness Instead, they're wondering why Christians are calling them Nazis and Gestapo. And those brothers and sisters are words that should not cross your lips unless you're referring to the Second World War and the Holocaust. And I wonder why, too, these Christians are denouncing those who are trying to do the best they can in a very messy situation. Probably wishing everything could get dialed back a bit. (laughs) Why they're being called Nazis and Gestapo on the news. I mean, it's embarrassing to see the behavior of these Christians here, there, and other places. It's embarrassing to see what's being written on Facebook and social media. Statistics show the majority of Christians who attend church are only attending church 50% of the time. Never on vacation. And they have no problem with not going to church in a blizzard, or if they take a weekend away, or if they have family visiting. You see, what that means is the government has no desire or need to shut Christian churches down. Christians are doing a good job of it all by themselves. You see, the greatest danger to the church is not out there in government land. It never has been. It never has been. And we're nowhere near persecution, but if it ever happens, it might be a good thing. The greatest danger to the church is in the church. The greatest danger is not capacity limits or fences. Paul makes clear in the epistles it, the greatest danger to the church is in the church. Error, theological error, wolves in sheep's clothing, sexual immorality, and disunity. Those are the three that destroy churches. And some of the behaviors of Christians, some of the, the name-calling and the defiance it's just not right. It's not right. We don't want to be associated with almost borderline hate. They are not meeting today in their building, and we feel for them. Things have gone too far on both sides, and if they would just open some dialogue, put out some hand sanitizer, some signs, some creative movement of people around the building like we're doing, like most churches are doing, No problem. I hope you do notice that we are meeting. A little complicated this morning, but we're meeting. And you know that there will be 550 people coming through this building today, spread out at different times, different services, different rooms, morning and evening, but over 550 people will be coming through this building as we worship and as we sing praises to God and as we pray together. This is because we have gone in a different direction and this is who we are. This is who we are. But make no mistake, if we are ever required to offer incense to our prime minister, we're not going to do it. And if we are told by the government we can't pray like Daniel was told and that we must pray to some other deity, we will get down on our knees wherever we are and we will pray to God. If we are told we must prostrate ourselves before a golden statue, some beast or worship some antichrist, we will not do it. And the lion's will get a taste of Canadian Christians. If we are told to adore our own Caesars, it's not going to happen because we adore Christ and Christ alone. This is who we are. We are different from grace life in their current choices. But here's where we are the same. And our text has told us where we are the same. We are servants of Christ. We are loved and called by God with his truth and his son who's risen from the dead. We are blood relatives with them through the blood of Jesus Christ and with everyone who meets in gospel truth. Here, there, everywhere. And so he finishes in verse 16 and 17 in this introduction I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is, I'm not, I'm proud of it, is what he's saying. I'm proud of God who created us and saved us. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, all of us. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. We're proud of God. He created us. And though we fell into sin and we are sinners by nature now as men and women of the human race, I mean, he undertook to rescue us from sin's consequences, to save us from the judgment on sin and to save us from eternal death. There's life in the name of Jesus Christ. And he did it all through his son, as he says here. His son who he sent into the world. To live a perfect life that he was qualified to take our sins and die with them. And he gives us his perfection. That's what we call justification. We're declared to be innocent though we are sinners. We're declared to be innocent because he gives us that justification. He imputes to us his righteousness. And we are then received by God, welcomed by God, not judged. We're free. And though his kingdom is not of this world, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and it will come when he returns. And the good news, the gospel, is not just words, but it says it's the power of God. It has power. When it's ushered by the Holy Spirit, it's brought into lives. It's powerful to those who will believe. The Holy Spirit takes it and seals it to our hearts and and if you remember when you, were first, when you first heard and when, when you were converted to Christ, that's the very power of God in you. What, what you abhorred before, what you mocked before, suddenly you embraced and received and believed and treasured the truth of God. It's powerful. When you put your faith in Christ, the righteous shall live by faith. That is faith in our faithful God who saves us you know if you're here and you're listening maybe even on the internet and live and streaming it or won't you believe in this same Christ won't you become blood relatives with all those through history and the millennia put their faith in Christ receiving his blood for the forgiveness of your sins There was a university student, uh, Fred Craddock, writes about this. He was a university chaplain. And there was a university student, a young lady, and she visited the chaplain. And and she said these words. She says, you know, I, I wasn't a Christian. I'd never even gone to church. And she told him how the day before, she was such a low spot in her life, she actually had gone out onto a bridge, climbed the rail, and was going to jump into the water. And as her hands gripped the rail, she said these words came into her head. These are the words. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. It's those words she said that Brought her back onto the road and she went to find out where those words came from. And she found out they were from the Bible. She'd never read the Bible. I've never read it, she said to the chaplain. I've never been in a church. He says, Are you sure you've never read a Bible? I don't know anything about Christianity, she said. Are you sure? And she said, Well, I mean, when I was a little girl, my grandmother took me to something they called uh, vacation Bible school. Tell me about that. Well, I remember they had me write some sentences on a piece of paper. We were supposed to memorize it. I never memorized it, she said. (laughs) He said, I think you did. I think you did. I think you did memorize them somehow in some way, and God stored that verse up all these years. He stored them in your heart, in your mind, that one day, yesterday, it would speak to you, and it would save you. And he led her to Christ Jesus. That's the power of God working. That has worked in many of you and can work in your life. Will you live by faith in Christ? You've been bought with a price. The price is the very life of Jesus who died for the forgiveness of your sins, who rose again, ascended into heaven, sits at God's right hand, and is coming again as he promised. Join with us as blood relatives in the blood of Christ. Live by faith in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the true God, the ever-living God. And we're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful that your gospel is the power of God, that you do wonderful works in people's lives, convicting them of sin and judgment, death. Causing their hearts to turn and put faith in the only Savior Jesus. Pray that might be true for someone listening this morning to put their faith in Jesus and follow him. Father, we know there's no freelancing, no free agents in Christianity. There's no attitude that says, "Nobody tells me what to do." that we have a defined body of truth. And we have a savior, a particular savior, Jesus the Christ. And with faith in him comes responsibilities on how we live and how we act and behave. And we are not ashamed of the gospel. Give us courage in these days with your truth on our lips. We pray for our blood relatives out in Edmonton at Grace Life. We pray for their humility, that there would be reasonableness on all sides, that communication would happen, that some of the language and some of the defiance would be dialed back. Give them ears to hear what their fellow evangelical churches are saying to them in Edmonton. Oh, we love them, their blood relatives, father, their family, and we hope for them. thank you for our services. Thank you for how our leadership has responded in these difficult times. And we ask for your continued grace and peace from you, Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.